Well, I think we may have established a new tradition at Crossroads Christian Church on Time Change Sunday. <laughs> Tailgate party in the parking lot on Time Change Sunday before services. That sounds like fun to me. It was fun this morning. Well, Max Lucado tells a story of Chippy the parakeet. He was a joy to Mrs. Smith, filling her life with song until one day while Mrs. Smith was vacuuming. She noticed that Chippy's cage needed cleaning, so she opened the door of the cage and removing the attachment began to vacuum as Chippy contentedly sat on his perch. Just then the phone rang and whoosh, Mrs. Smith sucked Chippy into the vacuum cleaner as she turned to answer the phone. And she immediately dropped the phone, turned off the sweeper, tore open the bag, and began to dig for her pet bird. And to her amazement, Chippy was still alive, but he was stunned. He was covered with dust and debris, I guess you could say. Her birdie was dirty. <laughs> so she ran to the bathroom. She turned on the faucet, and she plunged Chippy under the spray. Soon he was clean, but now he's shivering from the cold water. And so, I guess you could say, Chippy was drippy. So, Mrs. Smith turned on her hair dryer and blasted Chippy with hot air and scorched his feathers. And you could say the parakeet felt the heat. And a few days later, a reporter heard about Chippy's ordeal and thought it might make a good news story on a slow day, so he phoned Mrs. Smith to get the details. And at the end of the call, he asked, well, how's Chippy doing now? And Mrs. Smith replied, oh, he's fine, but, but these days Chippy doesn't sing much. He just sits there on his perch and stares into space. PTSD. <laughs> Parakeet traumatic stress disorder. Well, we, uh, we, like Chippy, can experience suffering that takes away our song. And that's what we have as we move from Revelation chapters 4 and 5, where we have just experienced the most awe-inspiring worship possible in the throne room of heaven, in the exalted presence of the Creator God and Jesus the Lamb, to Revelation chapter 6, when all of a sudden we're sucked into the abyss of suffering. Like Chippy, one day we're whistling and swinging on our perch, and the next we're pulled into a vortex of pain and suffering. But today we'll learn that suffering can actually provide great opportunities for us to demonstrate our faith and for us to witness for Jesus. Now, before we get into our text, I want to identify the sources of our suffering. I think all of our suffering could be put into one of these categories, one of these five categories. First of all, sometimes our suffering is the result of our bad choices. You reap whatever you sow. Sow to the flesh, and you will of the flesh reap corruption. And there are a lot of people whose suffering is just, you could draw a straight line between their suffering and some bad choice that they have made. But sometimes it's not our bad choice, it's someone else's bad choice. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. 
So the actions of the older brother to the younger brother broke the parent's heart and resulted in the death of an innocent man. So sometimes it's someone else's bad choices and we're victimized and our suffering comes from that victimization. Sometimes our suffering is just the result of living in a fallen world. Uh, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, John 16, 33. And it's just true. Sometimes our suffering can be traced to uh, satanic oppression of some kind. The Apostle Paul said, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. So the Apostle Paul's suffering was related to a satanic attempt to bring him down, to discourage him. We've got to be honest and say sometimes our suffering is related to God himself. Hebrews 12.4 says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes everyone he accepts. So sometimes it's the discipline of the Lord that results in suffering. However, on the authority of God's word, we can confidently say that in his sovereignty, God can always use our suffering, no matter what the source of it is, to accomplish his purpose. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so you've got your suffering on one side of the scale and you've got this eternal glory that far outweighs the suffering. God's purpose is to use suffering to transform us ordinary folks into people of strong faith, people of dynamic witness. And no matter the specific cause of our suffering, God has and he will use it to accomplish good things in us and good things through us. So here's a simple outline of the text of chapters 6 through 11 of Revelation. That's a lot of biblical text to cover, but here's the way it breaks down. In chapters 6 and 7 of Revelation, we see the opening of seven seals. And in that process, suffering is unveiled. Then in chapters 8 and 9, we move from seven seals to seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are sounded and the suffering is actually intensified. So it's unveiled in chapters 6 and 7. It is intensified in chapters 8 and 9. And then in chapters 10 and 11, faithful Christians witness to those suffering who do not repent to prepare them for Christ's return. So once again today... Let me pull back the veil so we can see what the Apostle John saw. And it's not so much a description of suffering that took place in the past or a description of suffering that will take place in the future. This is more like a revelation of the suffering that has, that is, that will always be happening on the earth. John begins to paint a picture of suffering that will be present on this planet until the end of time when Jesus returns. So what kind of suffering is unveiled by John? It's described in the breaking of the first six of seven seals. Let's look at them. In the text of Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, John writes, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of seven seals. I looked and there before me 
was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now here you have this first horseman that symbolizes all military invaders that have arisen and fallen through the years, past, present, and future. Whether it's Caesar or Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great or Hitler or Bin Laden or Putin or ISIS and the suffering of such military invaders always is inflicted on large numbers of people. Well then in Revelation 6, 3 and 4 When the Lamb opened the second seal, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. Now this rider disrupts peace wherever he goes and causes men to kill each other. Now the history of the world is the history of conflict and bloodshed, whether in homes or in cities or between nations. Somewhere, somewhere, every day, someone is killing someone else. From Jack the Ripper in London to the murderous feud of the Hatfields and McCoys in West Virginia and Kentucky to the inner city gangs of Chicago to the upscale Brentwood suburb of Los Angeles and as a result people suffer Revelation 6 5 and 6 when the lamb opened the third seal I looked and there before me was a black horse its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand then I heard a voice saying a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Often one of the consequences of war and bloodshed is famine. And a quart of wheat, that starvation rations for any family. And if a day's wages, let's say, is $100, $100 for a quart of wheat, that's a lot of money for a quart of wheat. It's long been true that somewhere in the world, And more often, many places in the world, it's always happening. Droughts, bug infestations, floods, every generation right up to the present. From ancient Egypt to modern-day Nigeria, people are starving. Today, 842 million people, one out of every eight people in the world, are seriously malnourished and suffering. And then in Revelation 6, 7, and 8, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I looked. And there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So the the fourth horseman is death itself, and he's everywhere, and he's present in every generation. Death is our ultimate enemy, and if the Lord tarries, 
death will have his way with us. His methods are many and varied. Clubs and swords and arrows and spears and bombs and guns and knives and Ebola and cancer and heart disease and accidents. And in the wake, in the wake of death, there are funerals and caskets and graveyards and suffering loved ones. Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Now here's a reference to the suffering of Christians from the early days of persecution in Rome right up to the present day in North Korea. When the fifth seal is opened, we see Christian martyrs who've died for the faith, devoured by lions, butchered by gladiators in Colosseums in the first century of Rome, and executed for owning a Bible in 21st century North Korea. And would you believe right now that there are 17 countries where it is life-threatening to be a Christ follower? And that's not our experience, but we are going to share it. Next Sunday night, during our night of prayer and praise, we're going to focus on prayer for the persecuted church at 6 o'clock next Sunday night, November 9th, right in this room. Revelation 6, 12 to 14, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars fell to the earth. Well, ever since Genesis chapter 3, our planet has been defective. Earthquakes, floods, fires, hurricanes, tsunamis, volcanoes, tornadoes. And when nature convulses, people are thrown into chaos. And this sixth seal describes such suffering in frightening apocalyptic language. But here's the thing, it is not important that we accurately interpret the meaning of each of these seals with pinpoint precision. Our focus should rather be to heed the warning that before Jesus comes again, things will go from bad to worse. And I think we're seeing this kind of amplified suffering right now on a global scale, like We've never seen it before. I've never seen it before in, in my lifetime. And so we want to ask, will we survive? Will our children survive? Will our grandchildren survive? If things go from bad to worse on this planet, how can we endure? That's the very question that's asked in a couple of different ways in our text. The two questions are, how long will it last and who will survive it? First of all, the martyrs who were killed for the word of God ask it in Revelation 6.10. How long? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? In other words, when's the suffering going to stop? And when is judgment going to happen? Now, friends, the answer to this question is not a timetable. Did you hear what I said? 
the answer to this question is not a timetable, but rather it's a couple of simple truths. The promise that one day we will be given a white robe. And then the assurance that God will not let suffering go on too long. He's promised that he will not allow us to be tested by trials and tribulation in this life beyond what we can bear. Look at John's words in Revelation 6.11. The very next verse. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. In other words, they're saying, how long, Lord? How long before the suffering stops? And you judge the inhabitants of the earth. And to each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer. So how long until judgment? John is saying, a reward is coming soon. So don't worry about it. Don't focus on it. Then the second question is asked by the condemned in Revelation 6.17. For the great day of wrath has come. And here it is. Who can stand? Who's going to survive? Who's going to endure? On the final day, the day of judgment, with the opening of this sixth seal, unprecedented supernatural events take place. And in John's vision, here's what it looks like. The sky recedes like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, when this happens, those who know that they will not receive a white robe, the unsaved. Whether kings or princes or generals or the mighty, the rich, slaves and free men will run to hide in caves and in the rocks John saw it in Revelation 6.16. They, that is the unsaved, called to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I want you to notice the way it says it there. Hide us from the face of him. In that moment, they know they were going to have to face Jesus they don't want to see that face. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. His judgment will be a terrifying thing to behold. And by the way, this is the only place in the Bible that we find the words wrath of the Lamb. And in answer to the question, who can stand... John answers that question. He answers it with two parallel visions in Revelation chapter 7. The first is a vision of 144,000 who will stand, who will be saved on the day of judgment. It's in Revelation chapter 7 verse 4. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. So who are they? Well, there's quite a bit of speculation here. But I believe, like so many of the numbers in the book of Revelation, this is not intended to be a literal number. It is a symbolic number. It represents the company of all the saved people of God under the old covenant, those saved by faith in Jehovah, and the new covenant, those saved by the grace of Jesus. So you have the number 12, 
representing the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. You've got the second number, 12, representing the new Israel, which is Christians in the New Testament. And you've got the number 1,000, which symbolizes wholeness or completion. So here you have 12 times 12 is 144 times 1,000 equals 144,000, a symbolic number referencing to all the redeemed. And then this second vision is, is just another way of saying 144, the 144,000, the whole redeemed family of God. Look at it, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes, they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And those people, that great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, that's the symbolic 144,000. That's all the people of God, two parallel visions that answer the question, who will stand. So in answer to the question, who can stand? Who will be saved? The simple answer is all those who belong to and worship the only God of the universe made personal and made knowable in his son Jesus. People past, present, and future who place their faith and give their devotion to the Lord God. Those who have survived the trials and tribulations of this life. To the sealed, to the saved is given this promise in Revelation 7:15. Therefore, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Rest and peace and security and refreshment for all eternity. Short-term suffering in this life, but there's long-term joy in the greater life to come. So the early Christians in the seven churches of Asia Minor got their song back in spite of their suffering. And so should we in spite of our suffering. God has promised to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Tears of depression, Tears of grief, tears of frustration, tears of loneliness, tears of betrayal, tears of shame, all wiped away. Well, what about the seventh seal, you ask? Here it is. Revelation 8.1. When he, that is the lamb, opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Did you notice how meaningful the silence was in the one song that our worship team led this morning when everything ceased and it was just quiet? Well, that's what we're talking about here in heaven. It's as though there's a period of silence for reflection, for meditation, to let reality sink in. Silence to contemplate both the suffering and the salvation unveiled in chapters 6 and 7. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we move from seven seals to seven trumpets. And throughout Scripture, 
trumpet signals something momentous was coming. It was a king's entrance. It was an army's attack. It was a divine rescue. The trumpet call is a warning. And the trumpet blast says, get ready. And like the seven seals, the seven trumpets reveal suffering on the earth, except except the suffering has now become more intensified and more widespread. The first four trumpets in chapter 8, verses 6 to 12, seem to signal the destructive forces of nature. And then... In Revelation 8, 13, John writes, As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And following the interlude of this ominous harbinger in chapter 9. There's a lot of strange and a lot of very frightening imagery revealed in the next two trumpets. But what's all that about? It's simply God warning the people on earth in graphic word pictures that if they do not humble themselves before him and turn to Jesus the Lamb unimaginably bad consequences will result. But sadly, they wouldn't listen. They didn't follow Jesus. As Revelation 9, 20 and 21 says, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of their demon worship and idolatry, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. In other words, things are getting progressively worse. Methamphetamine addiction spreads across the country. The threat of terrorism has never been more real. The possibility of a nuclear holocaust lurks in the background. The economy teeters on the brink. Plagues that we don't seem to have any defense for surface and threaten to not be able to be controlled. I see this stuff happening. And it, it brings me to my knees. But it doesn't bring everybody to their knees. There are some people, bring it on. There are some people... We'll recover, we'll rebuild, we'll lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't need any dependence on a higher power. Have you, have you noticed how easily some people seem to ignore the threat of consequences? Especially when we're talking about ultimate consequences. Heaven and hell. People ignore that one really, really easily. We punctuate our speech with references, lighthearted references to hell. They don't seem real to people for some reason, and they won't until it really happens. 
But did you know you can actually get too far down the road of willful sin to repent? Hebrews chapter 6, 4, and 5 reveals that sometimes it's impossible to restore a person to repentance. They are just so far down the road of independence from God, arrogance toward God, dismissal of God. So into their materialism and their intellectualism and their hedonism that they can't turn around. So what do we, the people of God, do when suffering, the sufferings of this life and the warnings about unimaginable suffering in eternity don't move people to repent or to turn to Jesus? Suffering doesn't always, pre, doesn't always produce brokenness and repentance in people. And that's why Revelation 10 and 11 comes in. These chapters reveal that the saved, that Christians, the church, have the responsibility to witness. But John doesn't instruct us about how to witness as much as he inspires us to witness because he knows that when it comes to witnessing for Christ, it is not information we lack. It's courage. Witnessing is how we pass on the baton of faith. If the next generation is going to keep the faith, we have to pass that baton on as witnesses. In Revelation 10, an angel gives John a scroll. He tells him to eat it, and the scroll is the word of God. And John says in Revelation 10, 10, I took the scroll from the angel's hand and ate it, and it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. God's word is sweet. The good news of God's grace is something many in our world are hungry for. It is a welcome taste. And I remember when we had babies that would wake up in the night and they wouldn't go back to sleep. Sometimes they would not want to take the pacifier and go back to sleep in the middle of the night. And so we discovered that dipping it in honey worked a miracle. They didn't spit that pacifier out. When we witness... We need to get people to the Bible. We need to get people to the Word of God because it has the power to both convict and transform. Now, when John tastes the scroll, it's sweet. But when he swallows the message, it's sour. Now, that's because not everyone likes to internalize the truth of God. Philosopher Karl Marx said, Religion is the opiate of the people. A sedative to make them feel better. But Pastor Tim Keller counters, Christianity is by no means the opiate of the people. It's more like smelling salts. And you often see people push smelling salts away. Even though they restore consciousness. Even though they restore awareness. Even though they help a person wake up to reality. And throughout the generations... Godly witnesses are sometimes resented, even resisted to the point of death. And that's what happens to the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. They're killed. But God intervenes and miraculously raises the two witnesses from the dead and they immediately ascended to heaven while their enemies looked on. And so the time for witnessing and influencing was over as it will be for all of us one day. And then finally, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. Revelation 11, 15 and 19. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom 
of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hail storm. And we are living in anticipation of that trumpet blast. We are living between the sixth and seven trumpets. And during this time period, we are like these witnesses, preparing people for the coming of Christ. But there will come a day when the witness will disappear and the trumpet will sound. And nothing else needs to happen. If you're thinking that somewhere in the world, someone, one world leader has to arise and, and, you know, some people think there are half a dozen things or a dozen things that have to happen before Christ returns. The judge was standing at the door in James chapter 5. The coming of the Lord was at hand in the first century. I'm telling you, nothing needs to happen. We're just waiting and witnessing and serving in anticipation of the trumpet blast. And I wonder if you're ready for that moment. After you've endured the suffering of this life and you die, or when the seventh and final trumpet sounds, it won't be long now, will you receive a white robe or will you run away and hide and call out for the mountains to fall on you? It's your choice. We want to help you make the right choice. And I know this, there's some people that wave their hand at this kind of preaching today. But I'm going to be faithful to what's in the book. It's right there in chapters 6 through 11. Suffering unveiled. The suffering intensified. The opportunity for us to witness in anticipation of the blast on the trumpet of God. And time will be no more. And when the trumpet of the Lord sounds and time will be no more. And the morning breaks eternal bright and fair when the saved of earth will gather over on the other shore when the roll is called up yonder. Will you be there? We want you to be. And that's why as we close this service, we have a time of commitment and we'll provide an opportunity for you. If you have questions, if you have conversations that you want to have, you just remain in your seats after we're dismissed this morning and we'll find our way to you and we will talk about these important matters. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father, we've had an opportunity this morning to see what you revealed to the Apostle John. Your vantage point on life and living. Your perspective on suffering that you never intended but was caused by sin and the salvation you promised to bring about through your son Jesus. We embrace these truths today. They are the rock under our feet. We thank you for them. We pray for those who need to get their feet on this rock today. In Jesus' name, amen.